0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this LSE Ideas um, East Asia International Affairs Program public talk. My name is Arn Westad, and I'm going to be chairing today. I'm one of the co-directors of LSE Ideas with uh, my friend and colleague, Professor Michael Cox of the International Relations Department. And it's a very great pleasure for us tonight to have an old friend of LSE and a very old friend of mine, who will be here talking to us uh, about his new book, Tiger Head, Snake Tails: China Today, How It Got There, and Where It's Heading, Jonathan Fenby. It's great to have you here, Jonathan. Um, Jonathan is a, a journalist, writer, East Asia expert, and one of the most productive and prolific authors who I know about anywhere in the business. Um, his new book, which he will be introducing today, has just been published but he has a most phenomenal series of various books that he's been doing over the past few years. And this comes after a very illustrious career as a journalist and editor, editing, among other things, the South China Morning Post for several years, and The Observer here in, in London. I think the book that you should read, that all of you should read, in order to get the background to what we're going to talk about today, is Jonathan's magnificent Penguin history of modern China, The One Voice of a Great Power, uh, 1850 to 2009, published a couple of years ago, uh, which is, in my view, by far the best historical overview of modern and contemporary China there is. It's a book that's very highly recommended, particularly to the students who are in the audience who want to pick up something about how China moved uh, through several historical efforts up to where it is today. He's also a biographer of Chiang Kai-shek, another uh, stellar book, Generalissimo, Chiang Kai-shek and the China He Lost. But John is not just working on East Asia and Chinese history. Um, He's also now the director of Trusted Sources, which is um, one of the primary uh, agencies for understanding the directions in which our world is turning, and particularly the emerging economies. Um, And he has written on a number of other fields um, uh, he's written on French history, he's written on Cold War history. Uh, his last book before this one, I think, was The General Charles de Gaulle and the friends France he saved. And one that I often recommend in terms of Cold War history is Alliance the Inside Story of How Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill Won One War and Began Another. Well put, if you want to understand how the Cold War started. So, Jonathan, it's a great pleasure to have you with us today to introduce your new book, *Tigerhead Snake Tales*. We're very much looking forward to your lecture. Welcome back to LSE Ideas. It's a great pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you, Mike, very much. Arnie, you're as always uh, too generous. And of course, uh, while I welcome what you said about my history of modern China, I'm really here to talk about this book today. That's uh, the different publishers, <laughs> and also coming from an Arsenal fan who is uh, swallowing his disappointment at his team's performance, that's uh, much appreciated. We there. get, them, we get. Them. You'll get that. Uh, what I want to do today is to start uh, by going fairly briefly. Uh, know, given the time available, uh, through the history of China since the mid-19th century, because I think that is essential for an understanding of China today. The way in which history is treated by the regime in China today means that that history is often very badly told and very badly understood for the Chinese people themselves. Most recently, of course, uh, an event like the 1989 massacres in Beijing uh, is more or less blanked out of history. But this same process goes back, uh, really, to the whole of uh, of the 19th century uh, history too. There's nothing new in this. Uh, Chinese dynasties, the first thing they did when taking power was to commission historians from the Chinese equivalent of the LSE or Oxford to write histories Vilifying their predecessors to show why their predecessors had lost the mandate of heaven. And in the case of China's only woman emperor, uh, Wu, uh, her successors uh, got the historians to write uh, a book which includes the information that she was so sex-crazed and so anxious to please her young male lovers that she took so many aphrodisiacs that she grew an extra pair of teeth. And we can see interestingly I 'm not saying drawing any parallels on that part, a certain parallel with the way that today uh, all the vilification uh, in the Boshi La affair and allegations of criminal behaviour and misdemeanors are being directed at Bo 's wife rather than at him, because it would be very embarrassing for the Politburo of the Communist Party to admit that one of its members, who was aiming to become a member of the Standing Committee uh, this autumn, was actually involved in anything untoward. So, chercher la femme, uh, play the wife and not the man, uh, is is very much the uh, uh, motto there, I would say. Well, what i'm going to do today is to go from uh, the period where china was an overwhelmingly agrarian backward society to the foxcons uh, and other uh, assembly Plants, manufacturing plants, uh, which drive so much uh, of the world's economy and which power much of American corporate life as well as Chinese. And there's a tendency always to see China's manufacturing and assembly just in terms of China, but a statistic you may be uh, clear, aware of, which I deal with in my book, a study by the Asian Development Bank showed that If you have an iPhone on you, which will say, designed in California in very big letters and assembled in China in very small letters on the back, about 70% of the sale price which you will pay for your iPhone goes to Apple, and only 6% of it actually stays with these workers and these factories in China. So you can imagine the effect of that, the importance of that on uh, Apple's bottom line and that of many, many other companies, and this is quite apart from their sales uh, into the Chinese market. The process, of course, was started by Deng Xiaoping. Here's the uh, painting of him uh, in Shenzhen, where he relaunched economic reform in 1992 uh, with his uh, famous Southern Tour, and we will come to that uh, later on. But if we go back now to the 1830s, not far uh, from Shenzhen in the Pearl River Delta, the British. is insisting on their right to exercise the God-given right of free trade, in other words to sell opium to the Chinese, uh, who after they had been uh, resisted by the agents of the Qing uh, dynasty uh, launched the first opium war where the ironclads uh, defeated the imperial junks and began uh, the uh, period known as the Century of Humiliation, with the treaty ports and foreigners, starting with the British but then with other foreigners, uh, putting themselves above Chinese law in what were, in fact, uh, small colonial uh, under, uh, settlements uh, throughout China. The foreign powers realized that China was too big ever to colonize as such, but these trading uh, ports, above all in Shanghai, were, of course, absolutely uh, central. Uh, to their presence in China and their exploitation of China. However, without in any way minimizing the brutality and rapaciousness of that colonial. Uh, expansion. For me, a much more important reason for the weakness of the Qing dynasty, which remember in 1800, China had accounted for about one third of global wealth. But by the end of the century, it was a sick man of Asia, uh, a tottering jelly, uh, as uh, the main uh, British newspaper in uh, Shanghai put it. And the major reason for this, to my mind, was the disintegration of the Chinese state uh, under the late Qing. The greatest example being the Taiping Rebellion led by Hong, who, of course, uh, a, a village teacher who had failed the imperial examination several times and went into some kind of fit, depressive fit. Imagined he'd gone up to the heavens, had met a very tall man with a long beard and a thick belt who had told him to go back to earth and liquidate the demons. And he didn't know what this meant for a while, but then he uh, was handed the Chinese translation of part of the New Testament, and he realized that the, the man he had seen in his vision was the Christian God, that he was the brother of Jesus Christ, and that the demons he had to liquidate were the Qing Dynasty and Confucianism. And he led the Taiping, the heavenly army, out of uh, the south of China, Amazingly successful up to the Yangtze. They took the southern capital of Nanjing, established their own capital there and ruled for 14 years uh, with warfare spreading through most of China at one point or another. There's an extremely good book uh, by an American academic, Steve Platt, that's coming out uh, this summer about the Taiping that really explains that that rebellion, that revolution and its extraordinary international uh, ramifications particularly with the British but the Taiping were not alone at the same time the Nian uh, who were really an army, a huge army at least a million, possibly two million uh, mounted bandits swept all over northern China from Shandong down in the southwest uh, Muslims set up the independent kingdom of Dali and then in Xinjiang In the far west of China, Yakub Beg set up another independent Muslim kingdom and actually tried to ally himself with Britain, but his letter to Queen Victoria never received a reply. Um, So you had the empire... ...pulled apart by all these enormous rebellions which went on altogether for 25 years. And at the same time, there was a dynastic crisis as the the British and French launched a punitive expedition on Beijing in 1860... ...alleging that the Chinese had not lived up to the conditions of the Treaty of Nanjing, which ended the First Opium War. The British went into Beijing, burnt the Summer Palace, the Emperor fled to his hunting estates, very, very ill and uh, died after naming his five-year-old son uh, as uh, his heir. So there was a weakness at the center. There were these rebellions. And the only way for the Qing, whose army was pretty incompetent for the most part. There were one or two good units, but most, pretty incompetent. The only way that, for the Qing to survive was to devolve power, in, effect, in fact, to the Han Chinese gentry, particularly the country gentry. Now, remember, the Qing were foreigners. They came from Manchuria. And they had kept the Manchu supremacy at court. But their only way of survival with these rebellions was to allow the, the country gentry, Confucian gentry, to raise armies of their own. And these Confucian gentry became more and more the, the real power brokers in China, and then gradually moved into the cities um, and expanded uh, their power through that. The Dowager Empress, the mother of the five year old heir, the throne became the main power uh, at court. Uh, She was very conservative, very committed to uh, maintaining Manchu power. She didn't understand modernisation, industrialisation, finance uh, or any of the other uh, elements which were driving the development of the West. Uh, That's her at a ceremony with on her right her her favourite eunuch. They like to dress up as Buddhist uh, deities and uh, perform various rites together. She lived, uh, she took power in the 1860s and exercised it through uh, to her death uh, in 1908. Increasingly, these han gentry and particularly in the cities and particularly those in the new model armies which the chinese started to set up really after their catastrophic defeat by the japanese in the war of 1894 uh, and then after the further punitive expedition by foreign powers in response to the boxers uh, the, the, the modern more modern generals uh, and particularly the urban uh, Han gentry began to agitate for a change of dynasty and This became a very uh, ethnic racist uh, campaign against the evil foreigners, the Manchu, and on behalf of the children of the yellow emperor uh, the Han dynasty and There were many secret societies, Uh, this is uh, a a picture of Sun Yat-sen, second left, uh, who of course was the leading figure uh, in these revolutionary groups. Uh, But the revolution itself, when it broke out, as you may be familiar, in October uh, 1911 was really by accident. A group of revolutionary officers in Wuhan uh, set off a bomb by mistake in their headquarters and events then unrolled and they were forced to uh, take action uh, rather prematurely. Uh, But the revolution was successful in the central uh, Yangtze, it was put down by imperial forces, but then spread throughout China. And by the beginning of 1912, Sun, who had been in Denver, Colorado, when the Wuhan uh, uprising started, and the story is that he, when he traveled abroad, and a lot of his traveling was abroad among overseas Chinese to raise funds for the revolution, uh, he corresponded with his colleagues back in China uh, with a, by code. And he'd gone from Texas to Denver, Colorado, but he'd left the the code book behind in Texas. So when he received a telegram in code from China saying the revolution has broken out, he had no idea what it said, and he learnt the news from the Denver Post newspaper the next day. He returned to China and was elected the first president um, of the republic uh, on the 1st of January uh, 1912. Uh, He didn't like governing much. Uh, He was a thinker son, rather than a man of action or administration. And after three months, he handed over to Yuan Shikai, who had been an imperial general who turned against the empire. And and in the intermediate period there, in February 1912, the last emperor's mother abdicated on his behalf, and that was the end of the 2,200-year-old empire. But China was in a very uncertain position. It was divided. The, the power, the different power base, there was no coherent uh, power base in China anymore. And Sun soon went into opposition to Yuan Shikai. Yuan Shikai died in 1916, of blood poisoning, and we went into the era when China was run by these men. Uh, and many others like them, the uh, warlords who ruled huge domains themselves uh, and were constantly either fighting or mock fighting or forming alliances and betraying each other. Again, there was absolutely no coherent uh, government. This was anarchy on a huge scale, abetted to some extent. By the foreigners, particularly the British in the mid Yangtze, who allied themselves with Wu Peifu, who was known as the Philosopher General because he'd uh, passed the Imperial Civil Service examination before the fall of the empire. And he was very proud of his calligraphy. Uh, but it was noted that when his private secretary died, the standard of his calligraphy went down quite a lot. <laughs> uh, he was also had a great taste for French brandy, which the man on the left, the Christian general, deplored and once sent him a large bottle full of white liquid. And Wu Pei Fu thought this was rather fine Mao Tai or something like that, and took a glass and spat it out because it was water. <laughs> Uh, So these people, there were many stories about them and much of this is in my book on Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek, meanwhile, had taken over from after the death of Sun Yat-sen in 1925 as head of the Kuomintang, uh, the party that uh, Sun had founded and which had been been reshaped into a Leninist party by Soviet advisors, Borodin, who had been sent by Moscow to uh, organize basically the revolution in China and Garland, a brilliant general who went to form the National Revolutionary Army and uh, Chang marched along the same path uh, as the Taiping, in fact, to the Yangtze from Guangzhou, Canton, as it was then uh, often called, took (coughs) Wuhan through a mixture of force and bribery. Chang was a pretty terrible general, but he was very good at bribery, must be said. Uh, Then took uh, Nanjing and then took Shanghai, this is his home uh, in Shanghai, and established himself as uh, the leader of the new nationalist government, which claimed Aimed to unite China, but its real effective control was over only ever over about four central Yangtze provinces. The rest was all a matter of diplomacy, bribery, mutual self-interest, uh, uh, and so on. In 1927, the nationalist Shang, nationalist right-wing, turned on the communists, the still quite small Chinese Communist Party, which had been allied with the Kuomintang in Canton. And... Uh, Chiang staged the white terror through 1927 massacring communists wherever he could find them. The communists took to bases uh, in hilly remote areas they were uh, suppressed one by one. The last base in Jiangxi province where Mao was at the time on very bad terms with the party leadership which was based in Shanghai and which disapproved of his ideas entirely but that base was finally encircled and it the communists broke out, the, the, the communist, uh, broke out uh, staged the Long March, which, of course, is one of the founding elements in the, the present regime, uh, and during which Mao established himself as the head of the party, the boss. And Chu Enlai, who'd been with the other group uh, in the Communist Party before, allied himself with Mao, thereby setting up this relationship between them that's never really been fully uh, explained. We go through the 30s, continual uh, regional risings against Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, the Japanese grabbed Manchuria in 1931. In 1937, the Japanese launched full-scale war, first of all in northern China, and then with the epic Battle of Shanghai. Uh, Chiang and the nationalists are forced out of Shanghai, then forced out of Nanjing. The Japanese staged the rape of Nanjing, of course. Uh, the Chiang troops... Fall back further to Wuhan. They can't hold out there, and eventually they go behind the Three Gorges uh, to Chongqing, uh, which became the most bombed city on earth. You see a picture here. No aerial defences at all. The Japanese launching huge fire raids, but the city held out because the Japanese they, they had a million troops tied down in China. They couldn't send in any more, and they couldn't get really through the three gorges perhaps they didn't want to because they really wanted to pacify to use a later term uh, the areas that they did control Uh, through the the Second World War Chiang basically sat it out uh, he had American backing although Roosevelt was careful not to send uh, troops, commit uh, ground troops uh, to China. He had his acerbic relationship with Joe Stilwell, the American advisor and chief of staff uh, who is a hero I know to many Americans particularly those who uh, go along with Barbara Tuckman's biography of him but for reasons I won't go into now but can afterwards if anyone's interested. For me he was the wrong man in the wrong place doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons, etc. A lot of wrongs about him. A very fine soldier, but it was all wrong. Uh, Initially, after the end of the Second World War, the nationalists did quite well. They drove north into Manchuria with a huge amount of American help, particularly logistics uh, and arms. The communists were pushed back uh, towards the frontier with Russia, but George Marshall, the future American Secretary of State, who'd been sent by Roosevelt to China on a mission of bringing a coalition government about between the nationalists and the communists which was a hopeless idea but Marshall kept trying at it and at one point he used the ultimate threat against Chang he said if you don't stop fighting we will stop supplying you with arms and transport and Chang did agree to a temporary ceasefire and the Red Army basically escaped from probable annihilation at that point. Uh, Chang later said it was the greatest mistake he'd ever made uh, in his life. The, Chini- the Communists fought back through 48, 49, uh, first of all in Manchuria, then taking Beijing and Tianjin, and then moving down into central China and winning an epic battle at the end of 48 in uh, east-central China, where there are about 3 million people involved. It's battles that are never written about and very little known about, which were on a huge scale. And um, The Communists were well-equipped. Uh, They had a lot of Soviet equipment and they had a lot of captured American equipment. Uh, They were very well led, very disciplined, supported by uh, very good supply uh, arrangements. Uh, But they were also perhaps, I would say, without being facile about it. Perhaps the the Communist's greatest uh, uh, trump card at this point was Chiang Kai-shek, because he fought this war absolutely hopelessly. He would have uh, evening meetings uh, with his high command and would issue instructions, orders to the generals, which they had to follow to the letter. But by the time the orders arrived, the battlefield situation had changed completely. Um, And he lost battle after battle, huge corruption, very incompetent commanders in many of these battles, although one or two very good ones. And by October, uh, the first 49, Mao uh, drove in to uh, Beijing in a captured American uh, limousine and proclaimed the People's Republic uh, in this uh, photograph here. So you can see this period from the 1830s through to 1949, China was continually um, buffeted by its internal weaknesses, by external invasions, Rather than, I would say, uh, the activities of the Treacy ports, uh, by a failure to produce a coherent state system by the weakness of that state, by regional divisions, by many, many other, by corruption, by many other things, by huge natural disasters, uh, and so on. And a lot of this was internal weakness rather than external weakness, although you can perhaps put the the Japanese invasions uh, as a a, 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 a rider uh, to that. Mao brought national unity (coughs) and the idea that here was A new agenda, a new deal based on a new and strong state. And you can see the appeal of that. Uh, I mean, overseas Chinese went back to China after the foundation of the People's Republic, thinking here is uh, a new dawn. There was uh, land reform, of course, and it was pretty brutal in many places, including in Sichuan, where Deng Xiaoping, uh, a Sichuan native, oversaw the process. And there was a lot of, of brutality, obviously, during that period. Partly as a result of the brutality which landlords uh, had uh, exercised uh, for centuries before, people were Having their revenge uh, at this point. Then things started to go out of kilter with the Hundred Flowers um, uh, movement where Mao, you can take two views of this, either naively Mao said okay say what you think of the regime and people did talk out and when he found that they were actually rather critical not just of the regime but of him personally too He turned on a sixpence and ordered Deng Xiaoping to launch a huge anti-rightist campaign. Or you can take the more cynical view and say that actually that was Mao's intention all along, and he just wanted the uh, hidden opponents to come out and show themselves so that he could uh, get rid of them. We then had the Great Leap Forward, the backyard furnaces, uh, which... uh, rather touchingly now, was launched with the idea that China's steel production would overtake that of Britain in 15 years. I mean, this seems an unbelievable (laughs) uh, thought now, uh, the difference between the two. That ended in um, pretty much disaster and uh, led to the Great Famine Um, from around 1960, in which perhaps 40, 45 million people died. Responsibility for the famine is still something which is a subject of great uh, dispute, uh, as some of you uh, will be aware, but there's no doubt, I think, that this was an absolutely enormous, largely man-made catastrophe. Mao was forced onto the back foot. He had to hand over effective running of the party and the country to Liu Xiaoxi, his deputy, uh, and Deng Xiaoping, but after two or three years he would had enough of playing the figurehead president and came back with the Great Cultural Revolution, which again I'm sure you'll be familiar with, but which itself became increasingly anarchic and increasingly self-destructive of the Communist Party and of the state. There was less and less logic to it, uh, and it was more and more one man's uh, fancies, if you like, and adventurism, uh, which uh, took over. In the meantime, despite all this uh, chaos, of course, Mao uh, and uh, Nixon met in Beijing in 1972, uh, both basically meeting because they saw a common enemy in the Soviet Union which is really what brought them together. It's rather like the Second World War Alliance, the book which Arne referred to earlier on. Roosevelt, Stalin and Churchill could find common ground so long as they had a common enemy. in the the shape of Hitler and the Japanese. As soon as the enemy disappeared, that uh, alliance uh, broke up. In this case, it was the Soviet Union. And of course, there have been clashes on the border between China uh, and the USSR. Uh, And so Kissinger, showing Realpolitik in this case, arranged the meeting between uh, the two leaders Uh, The spittoons apparently rather took Nixon uh, aback uh, there. Uh, And it was interesting because there's one side element to this, that uh, Kissinger, in the negotiations to set up uh, this visit, had kept the State Department out of it completely. He said, if you told the State Department, it would be in the Washington Post the next day. And he had to keep absolutely paranoid about keeping uh, security. He may have been right, uh, mind you. Uh, And... When, he went, when they went to this meeting uh, with Mao, they, Chu and Lai went to get them from the, the guest house, and uh, Nixon got into the car, limousine, Kissinger got in with him, and Winston Lord. Uh, Kissinger's uh, assistant who was sitting on the right there but was cropped out of the photograph because it would seem there were too many non-State Department people there they went to see Mao and uh, afterwards Kissinger said oh I thought uh, Bill Rogers the Secretary of State was left standing on the the doorstep uh, of the guest house and Kissinger said innocently afterwards oh I thought there'd be a second car to bring him along I mean he knew quite well there wasn't Uh, at the end of the meeting of, of the visit in Shanghai uh, Nixon said to Kissinger, look, Henry, you can't cut the State Department out of this forever. You've got to give Bill Rogers something to deal with with China. And Kissinger replied, I think this is in Margaret Millan's book, OK, let them deal with trade. That will never amount to anything. <laughs> so you can see Kissinger's prescience there. Mao's death, 1976 found China in a pretty catastrophic, pitiable state. I have many statistics there uh, in my book. And Deng Xiaoping, who came out on top from the power struggle at the top uh, in 1976-78, to realized that something had to be done. Uh, And I would argue that basically uh, what has happened in China since then was the result of a a, a single... um, Decision, awareness, flash of whatever it was, uh, from Deng Xiaoping, which was basically not economic, but political. He saw that the Communist Party, to which he had devoted his whole life since being a teenager in France in the 1920s, was in danger of complete implosion after what it had gone through during the Cultural Revolution. He was determined to safeguard and re- re- rebuild China, but also the Communist Party as the instrument but which would be seen as having made China great again and which would thereby be protected itself by its success in China's renaissance and he, he didn't wake up one morning and read uh, um, a textbook by an LSE economics professor, uh, he had advisors who did that, um, but he realized that you could use economics as the prime political tool for <coughs> rebuilding China and rebuilding the Communist Party. And I think that has, remains important to this day. The great economic growth of China, which dazzles us all, is also a very important political uh, exercise and agenda. For instance, in 2008, to jump forward, when China was facing a really big economic downturn, the stimulus package that was launched in November 2008 was not simply to reflate the economy, it was also to save the regime and to give the regime legitimacy. And it is said that Hu Jintao said at this point in 2008, our ability to restore growth to China will be the test of the Communist Party's right to rule China. Whether he used the word right or not is a question, but there was certainly that link is always made. So one can't see the economy in China in isolation. It has to be seen as an essentially political uh, narrative. Deng of course launched reform with the town and village enterprises, small scale uh, manufacturing, meant to be cooperatives but uh, usually often private enterprises and he uh, established diplomatic relations with the United States which hadn't been uh, established by Nixon although many people think it had and he went to the United States on a barnstorming tour where he put on 10 gallon hats. There's a wonderful photograph which I can't not find anywhere, but I've seen of him meeting the Harlem Globetrotters. And there's Deng, five foot tall, looking up like that. If anybody can find it, do uh, send it to me. Uh, and since then, we have had the huge growth of of China, the huge economic growth of China with in 1989 with uh, the suppression of protests uh, in Beijing and other cities the clear agenda that economic liberalization does not mean any relaxation in the monopoly power of of the Communist Party and how those two uh, elements uh, coalesce and work together is another of the basic underlying uh, narratives of China today and it's interesting. Because just today, the three main Chinese uh, media uh, outlets People's Daily, Xinhua, People's Daily for the Party, Xinhua for the State, and the Youth Daily for the Youth League, which is very important in China, have all come out with calls for political reform. But this is not multi party democracy. This is that the party should become more efficient and more effective at representing the people and we will see if this is a a new stage uh, or not Um, coming to the the present day of course China's superlatives uh, induce shock and awe around the world Uh, you've got a few of them here I have um, a page I think in my book of this, Mike you may have uh, cut out uh, another few pages that I could have gone on forever uh, about this the biggest political party in the world, 55% of the world's pigs, the biggest army in the world, Chongqing, of course, a municipality with 32 million people. Uh, It's enormous. Anything, any country that has 1.3 billion people and has managed to mobilise itself and modernise itself in the way that China has is bound to produce huge numbers. Quarterly growth figures, we're used to this. You can see it is quite volatile, um, the the graph, but the interesting thing is that even at the bottom of the downturn, at the end of 2008, it never falls below 6.5%. And at present, where the government is trying to slow, slow, slow down the economy and make it more sustainable and balanced, the aim is still to have 7.5% growth a year. So we're operating at a very, very high level here but at the same time that China is enormous it's also very small and a, lot a collection of very small elements which are all coming together but many, so many of them that it makes it uh, uh, on a huge scale. I mean to take an example from the economy the biggest Chinese property developer China Vanki, has only 4% uh, of the market Chinese agriculture is hugely fragmented and quite inefficient uh, as a result of that. You get this all through uh, China you have to look at it as lots of little Pieces which are many moving in different ways according to their own volition, regional uh, influences, uh, or other factors. uh, Then we come to the other side, the huge urbanisation of China. Uh, There were stories, I think, last month saying 50% of Chinese now lived in cities. That, in fact, is an underestimate because that is only people registered to live in cities and so doesn't include migrant workers, so you've got to add another 100 million uh, or so to that. But the growth of Chinese cities is one of the great driving forces in the world economy through the uh, demand that it spawns for the raw materials which have made Australia, Brazil, uh, Middle East uh, and African countries uh, so much more prosperous uh, than they would have been otherwise. But many Chinese cities are still not really very well developed as cities. Again, they are small districts and areas which coalesce in in one big ring that somebody has drawn on a map. This is a nation on speed, the high-speed train here, of course, which believes that it can do anything it wants bigger and faster than anyone else in the world and of course we have problems such as the high speed train crash in eastern China uh, last summer because in some ways China is just going too fast uh, and needs to slow down but it's very difficult to to manage uh, that process. It has become one of the world's major consumer markets this is a Vuitton store in Shanghai which as you can see found a rather unusual way of promoting its uh, its handbags Uh, for for European luxury goods manufacturers in particular makers of French wine makers of almost anything that has a cachet uh, for the Chinese middle class China is the main or the second biggest uh, sometimes contributor to their bottom line and uh, I've been struck in China uh, and I don't mean to say this in in the offensive way because we're all like this but by the degree of materialism which is now evident in China there's a a tendency to to write by some Western writers to write of China as though it was somehow still a a, a, a Confucian uh, state of thinking of higher things uh, in in the world but uh, I'm afraid that Other examples do keep intruding, Uh, for instance the young lady on a dating show in Jiangsu province uh, the equivalent of blind date, who was asked what she'd be looking for in the young man on the other side of the screen, and she said, well, let me cut straight to the chase. I'd rather cry in the back of a BMW than laugh on the back of a bicycle. And <laughs> that may be so everywhere. When I recounted this to a young colleague, she said, well, I'd probably say that too. So I'm not saying it's uniquely China, but this is a very important element in China uh, today. As one of my colleagues uh, who has been out of China for 10 years and has gone back to live there now uh, said recently, it's not who you are or what you do in China that counts, so much as what you can afford. And there's a lot of truth in that. China has become, obviously, a major global player uh, with the Sino-US relationship, probably the most important in the world. It is investing all through the world, increasingly going into Latin America as well as Africa. Uh, and other parts of Asia and would like to invest more probably, but its main function, main reason for going out and investing is simply to get the raw materials which it lacks. Uh, China has a big resources imbalance, Uh, for instance 21% uh, of the world's population and 7% of the world's arable land. So it's going to have to go out and buy food as uh, food demand steadily increases. The growth of China, as I say, is you know, an established fact. It's probably the most important fact uh, global development since the end of the Cold War, and even in some ways perhaps more important than, than it, since it overlaps. But, and it is not going to collapse. The book written 12 years ago, The Coming Collapse of China, is still wrong, I would argue. Uh, but <clears throat> it does face an enormous set of challenges today, which those who see China as a uniquely well-run uh, Uh, The country which is going to come to rule the world, uh, I think ignore at their peril. The economy is unbalanced, there are huge regional disparities the wealth gap is growing, the Gini coefficient of wealth disparity is now beyond the point at which it is generally regarded to be socially dangerous corruption uh, is is, uh, rampant still, there's a new uh, anti-corruption drive uh, being launched at the moment, again a Vox Pop, a six-year-old girl who was interviewed by a newspaper as to what she wanted to be when she grew up, said an official, a corrupt official, because they have all the nice things. <laughs> uh, legal, there are, The demographics are moving the wrong way. Too many old people because of improved health care. Too few younger people coming into the labor force because of Falling fertility, which predated the one-child policy, but this is now—we're now in the second generation uh, of that demographic uh, decline. There's the whole question of trust in officials. You know, again, a saying which you might say in many countries, but which you hear in China: "Only believe something when the government denies it." Uh, you know, trust. It. Safety, lack of regulation, food safety scandals all the time. The weak—sorry, I didn't say weak legal it should be weak legal system. Uh, and lack of accountability. The legal system is still very politicized. Uh, Chinese judges have just been told that they must all swear an oath of loyalty to the Communist Party. You have the running issues of Tibet and Xinjiang, uh, where China uses force, uh, certainly in Tibet, to maintain uh, rule. And I think uncertainties about China's global role. It is a major global player, there's no doubt. But in many ways, China's foreign policy is very poorly, uh, is incoherent. Mm. China wants uh, resources, it doesn't want other powers to interfere in its internal affairs, it wants uh, to be able to regain Taiwan, and it may now be asserting sovereignty over the South China Sea. But its role in international relations and in international rule-making, if you like, and the re- it calls for a reshaping of the international order, but really plays very little part in that. And I think that is largely because there are so many different players Working in foreign policy in China, and the foreign ministry is actually weak. That is another subject which will be examined in detail, an in extremely interesting detail, by another uh, LS uh, Ideas session here on May the 29th, called "Kiss of the Dragon," in which I will be taking part, among others. And I hope you will all come along to that uh, too. And then there's the question of one-party rule. What is the Communist Party for now? Is it simply to deliver material advancement, or is there more to it than that? And this is, I think, uh, a debate which is going on within the party itself. There is the environmental Uh, problem, an enormous environmental um, crisis affecting air, water uh, and many other areas. There are increasing number of protests, it's said 150,000 a year, nobody can quite count them, but interestingly now, not just over land requisitions by local authorities, which has been the main cause of this, but over many, many other issues and interestingly also involving the middle class, as here in Dalian, where middle class people are protesting against a petrochemical plant, which they thought, uh, if you're being nice to them, might poison the atmosphere, and if you're being cynical, might uh, affect the value of their properties, since it was being built near a property thing. There is the control ethic which is deep in the DNA of China, not just of the Communist Party, but goes back way, way to the first emperor. Remember, although people talk about Confucianism, the first emperor was actually a legalist, and he had the Confucian scholars certainly banned and possibly buried alive. And legalism basically says, use the law to scare people so much that they will do what they're told. Um, And that has always been the iron glove the iron fist within, if you like, the Confucian velvet glove, all through uh, Chinese history. So we finally come to the nine men who run China, the Standing Committee of the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, you will notice a number of things about them, apart from the rather unfortunate hand gesture the position of, of some of those, which may recall some other kinds of things. Uh, they're all wearing nice dark suits, they all have white shirts and good ties, and they all have extraordinary luxuriant heads of thick black hair of which I am very uh, jealous, of course. (laughs) Uh, A former British ambassador tells me there is an official hair-dye leadership leadership factory, an official hair-dye factory for the leadership in Beijing. He may be pulling my leg, I don't know, I haven't visited it. So these are the nine men who rule China. Six or possibly seven of them will step down at the next party congress, which is being held probably in October uh, of this year. That's because you can only do two terms at the top, or you have to retire uh, when you're 68. They will be replaced by a new cast. Xi Jinping, who will become party secretary and then state president and then head of the military. Li Keqiang, who will become prime minister, when the legislature meets in March uh, of next year, and other people along the bottom who will play varying roles, notably Wang Yang who runs Guangdong and is the most interesting politician in China at the moment because he's actually talking seriously and sensibly about the need for economic, social reform, which will inevitably spill over into rethinking the political system. And Bo Lai, who you all have been reading far too much about uh, these last uh, few weeks, of course, all the titillating detail uh, is unputdownable, but basically, I think his fall was down to the fact that he'd become too big for his boots, Uh, He was the loose cannon, the rock star, as I called him, uh, of Chinese politics. And when it became known that he wanted to get the security portfolio on the standing committee of the Politburo, which would have given him complete control over the police, the others said, hey, that's a bit too much. And as soon as the unfortunate Mr Haywood's case came up, that was developed uh, as a way of bringing him down. Uh, I can't claim in my book which... uh, was of course finished uh, towards the end of last year, to have predicted uh, in any detail his downfall, but I am quite proud of a sentence which says that he is a tall poppy waiting to be chopped down. So, <laughs> And that's what happens, I think. Um, but whether it's the new or the old leadership, they're all united on one basic thing, which is to keep the red flag flying, to keep the Communist Party in monopoly control, although it will become more flexible. It will become more like the Liberal Democrats, say, in Japan in the 1960s, or the PRI in Mexico uh, in, in, in older days. The economy has to be kept going, because that is the key to continuing political power. The middle class has to be kept happy because that will ward off what Bill Clinton had predicted in the 1990s, that economic growth would bring political diversity and competitive democracy. So China is operating in, I would argue, basically a political uh, system which dictates uh, the economy. The two work together. They've worked extraordinarily successfully together from China's point of view uh, since the 1980s. They've enabled the regime to maintain quite wide support despite its oppressive uh, attitude towards dissent and human rights uh, and and towards uh, Tibet uh, and Xinjiang. The question now is whether that system can continue in an increasingly mobile society. The changes in Chinese society uh, every year are absolutely amazing. And in the age of the Internet, and this evolving society, can the old methods still work? And I think that uh, the Communist Party and the state themselves are well aware of this. And you're starting to get a debate, uh, if I may, a small personal element in this. When I was in uh, Beijing uh, about six weeks ago, um, my publisher had sent an advanced copy of the book to China Daily, which is the state newspaper. Eng- okay, it's English language so the readership is not enormous, but it, it's the state newspaper, that's the important thing. And I got an email from an editor at China Daily saying, would I write a lead op-ed comment piece arguing why China must have structural economic reform? which I think it might. And this was rather strange because here was a state newspaper running a piece which said the state should relax its control and reduce its uh, influence in the economy. So I'm a tiny bit of this. Wang Yang is certainly conducting this. The editorials today in the three main newspapers are another sign of this. There really is an important debate going on at the moment in China, and given China's importance in the world, that is important not just for China but for everybody else. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much Jonathan. That was a superb overview. If you uh, wonder about where China is going, and I think all of us do, you could not be better equipped than uh, having the kind of overview that you could get from Jonathan Fenby today, and you will get even more of that um, when you buy and read a book. Now, I wanted to start just with one question that will take questions from from the audience. You have quite a bit of time to develop this further. But Jonathan, I, I wanted to start where you left off in terms of divisions within the party leadership. Now, we've had the Bohilai affair, and I agree with you entirely in terms of the fundamentals of that story. This is someone who got too big for his boots, too flash, too visible, um, too, you know, corrupt beyond any kind of, of, of understanding or of forgiveness uh, in, in, in parts of the, of the Communist Party. Uh, and someone who didn't have a particularly strong, coherent political program, except more power for himself and his family and his closest associates. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about the real division lines, which is where you ended up um, within the, the party leadership. And you talked about the economy and in terms of how the economy is supposed to be governed but what are the other division lines I mean coming up to a party congress I think even those who are sceptical of reform within the party leadership understand that this is a, an occasion this is a watershed, this is where the party really needs to make some very, very forward looking decisions what are the division lines that we are looking at coming up to the party congress as you see them
1: Well, I'd agree with that. I mean, if if we talked a year ago, I probably would have been much more sceptical about this. But I think there is at least a widespread and general recognition that the future of the party and the future of the economy and the future of China, and they're all intermixed Mm -hmm. with the system, as I explained, that that now has to be addressed, that you can't simply put it off. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the, the main differences are between those... Shorthand, let's say, like Boshi Lai, and that's where he can be a symbol, whose basic wanted to continue as we are at the moment, at the moment, really, uh, and with both untrammeled political power yeah. and borrow more money from the state, from households through the state banks and spend it on huge projects. I mean, the debts that will come to, 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 to fruition in Chongqing in a year or two's time will be absolutely enormous. And whether people will speak of the Chongqing model quite so fondly, then we will see. There are those people on the one side. And then on the other side, there are people like Wang Yang. And where he's interesting, I mean, he's coming from the richest province in China, so he's he can say this in a sense. It's easy for him. He's saying, stop being fixated with GDP growth figures. Seven percent is quite enough. There are much more serious issues that we have to deal with. We have to deal with the environment. Mm-hmm or it will overwhelm us. We have to deal with social issues and above all with the migrant workers because of course the Chinese miracle has been based on armies of migrant workers. Mm. They go from their villages in Sichuan to work in Guangdong, but because they are registered under the hukou system in their home villages, they have no rights in Guangdong. They have no rights to health, to education, to welfare, or to buy property. And the first generation of migrant workers, by and large, accepted this. Uh, you know, they were just happy to get into yeah. the, the labor stream and send the remittances back that kept the villages alive and so on. The, the children are, by all accounts, all surveys, Marty White from Harvard has done good work on this, uh, Increasingly dissatisfied, mm. and it's not an economic thing. It's not the wages so much. Mm. They are just feel they are treated as second-class citizens. It's the unfairness there. And we've had one or two riots which got completely out of hand. There was one mm. in I can't remember the name of the town which produces you know 40% of the world's mm. fashion designer jeans, um, and that just escalated from a pregnant woman hawker who was jostled about by the police and knocked over. Uh, because she was trading in a place she wasn't meant to and they wanted to shake her down suddenly there were 10,000 people on the streets there so there is an awareness and then you have the Wukan affair with the village that more or less cut itself off from Guangdong and Wang Yang is saying you've got to talk to these people yep. or it'll be you know, so it's self-protective it's going to be very dangerous for us and he's also saying we've got to move up the value chain now I, I was in Sichuan last month and driving around in the backwoods of that back country of Sichuan, I mean, it still is extraordinary. You see the pictures like the one at Foxconn that I showed, but the backwardness of a lot of the factories there, you know, jeans-washing, metal-bashing factories, which are 20 years back and so on. Now, they can get greater productivity to make up for rising wages uh, through very easy mechanisation. But in a place like Guangdong, you've got a real question of a major upgrading. Of the technological thing, uh, structure, and interesting, Wang Yang was said to us, uh, was reported to have said to the city authorities in Donghuan, which is a huge assembly uh, plant town, if you don't modernise, if you continue to try to use the cheap labour, cheap capital, big exports model of the 1980s, you will end up as quote Guangdong's Greece. Yes. So, you know, this is the phrase reported from him. So there is that real debate going on. Now, where does Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, the future prime minister, as far as we can tell, recognises this and also recognises the need to to really do something for the poorer people of China through social housing, above all, and to encourage smaller private enterprises, which have been very badly dealt with over the last four or five years in favour of the big state-owned enterprises. Where does Xi Jinping stand? I said this to someone in Beijing. Uh, we were talking about this. And I, I posed the rhetorical question to this guy who I, I thought might, Chinese source who I thought might tell me. I said, Where does Xi Jinping stand? And he said, I don't know. Where does Xi Jinping stand? And I said, Well, if you ask me, I don't think he knows where he stands because you will wait till after the party congress and the NPC and then see what the balance of power is and what he can do. And he said, You're absolutely right. Now, I don't know. He didn't want to give an answer clearly. But I think we're still in a very interesting. Mm. Period of you know, feeling the stones yeah. if you're going to go on crossing the river because there's no awareness that you're stuck in the middle of the river. Yeah.
0: No, I think, I, I think that, is, that is exactly right. I think one of the issues is, of course, that protest may easily remind the leaders of how little time they actually have. Yes, yeah. Of course, it reminds me of Xi Jinping's father, who I actually knew, uh, who was one of the very few people. I mean, he's not becoming China's next president and, and, and head of the party, but one of the very few people within the top leadership who took these kinds of challenges certainly. seriously. Yeah. Uh, uh, and ended up then famously dissenting against the crackdown on the democracy movement in 1981. Yeah. One of the very few senior leaders who did that opening. If I might just add yeah. a line, which
1: sorry, is, is, is linked to this, and I probably should have said it in the talk, but I, I talked about reform, reform. What are we talking about there? We're talking about privatization of farmland. Mm. Uh, but that has a huge knock-on effect, because it means that local authorities can no longer requisition the land and use it for 40% of their revenue. So you've got to, you've got to have a new fiscal system for local authorities. We mean the end of the HUKO system, so that migrant workers can have rights in cities. But when they've tried this out, it's been a disaster because the cities can't absorb can't offer services to that number of people. It means reform of the capital markets and interest rate systems. But if you have proper interest rates, a lot of state-owned enterprises are going to go out of business, practically, because they depend on cheap capital. You've got to have better energy and water pricing to uh, have realistic rates to reduce waste of water and energy. But that pushes up inflation. So everything you do has a knock-on effect, which you can understand people say, hey, you know, let's back off that for a while. No, indeed,
0: indeed. Okay, questions from the audience. I'm going to start down here, on the right in the front. I'm going to get to the people upstairs as well, so don't don't worry. I'm going to take a couple of questions going together. Please, sir. Hugo de China Media Centre. That was a terrific, terrific and very stimulating talk. Thank you very much. Uh, The quality and, (coughs) excuse me, incorruptibility of officials is a very important element of whether the present dispensation can survive. You've been very... Critical, very skeptical about officials, but there have been so many reforms in the last few years mm. professionalization, training, yeah. um, recruitment, and so on. Have they, have they done it? Okay, that's a very good question. Yeah. Just what
1: yeah. Isn't the fixation with the economic growth rate because of, the wi- because of the fear that if it falls much below 6%, there will be widespread social unrest? And how long do you think China can maintain its current economic growth rates of between 7 and
0: 8%? Do you want to handle those two first, gentlemen.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, on the first, you go. I wish I knew is the answer. I mean, I've met very efficient local... Comp- when we were in Sichuan, for instance, uh, last month, these were local officials of a county. I mean, a county of half a million people, mind you, who were very... Knew, knew exactly what should be done and so on. I mean, they were held up, they said, by difficulties in raising capital, in operating within the system. They were fairly uh, outspoken about the restrictions that there were, were on them. But I think one of the, you know, so this is, may sound like a, a platitudinous uh, getting out of giving a good a straight answer to you, but China is so big and it's so complicated, and many parts of it are still coming from. A Pretty corrupt backwardness that this is a process which will take ten years or so it 's being done, I think, and there i mean and it also depends on what policies are being espoused at the center i mean there 's one Chinese professor who famously said China is run by a bunch of very smart people doing the wrong thing, so you know that 's the question there as for the growth rate um, they will bring it down to probably 7.5% this year. If it falls, it's not just how much it falls, but how fast it falls that is the problem. If it goes below 6.5%, you have a real employment problem in China. That will diminish as the, as the demographics change and as you've got fewer workers coming into the system. But what you say about the fear of unrest is undoubtedly there, and that is a friend of mine who, who was... Semi, well, he was purged after Tiananmen Square, but still keeps in touch with uh, a lot of the people running China now. He says that Westerners always underestimate the importance of jobs and employment in the minds of the people running China. Because the protests that we have at the moment are a one issue, a one issue protests by and large, and everything from the environment and land grabs to bus fares to police misdemeanors and so on and so on. If you had widespread unemployment, that would produce a kind of glue of four protests which would be extremely dangerous so you know, if push comes to shove if growth were to fall off, if you had the hard landing in China which I don't believe in, I think it's going to be a soft landing in China, but if you have a hard back landing with growth careering down towards 6% then you probably go back to the 2008 recipe fling, fling a lot of money at it and they've got a lot of money but that then stops the reforms which were going to be done in 2005-06 and started but were then put on the back burner because they had to buy their way out of trouble.
0: Yep. Upstairs, anyone? Right at the end over there. Show of hands, yes. Judith. Yeah, start over there. Yes, sir. Uh, hi <clears> there. <throat> I just wanted to ask a question first about um, you touched briefly on Chinese foreign policy. Um, obviously, in, in China, there's a lot of sort of nationalism amongst the population, or someone arguing jingoism, stoked up by the party. Um, how much appetite is there from people, and with this sort of have an effect on a party in terms of in terms of having a greater foreign policy and greater impact in the world. And China is exerting its influence in the world uh, on the world stage. And, and will do you foresee at some point down the line their foreign policy being anything other than sort of slash and burn, real politic, going to a country, get as much resources as you can, and get out. Will, will there be sort of change? Online, some of them more constructive, perhaps. Are you asking if there are any ideas there? <laughs> yes. Well, is there any appetite, perhaps, is that the question? <laughs> yes. there there are, <laughs> some of the ideas go back approximately, what, 2,600 years? But they're sometimes very difficult <laughs> to yeah. see. Anyway, over there, front. Hi. Uh, Deng Xiaoping's first trip abroad was to Singapore, and it's been constantly posited that Singapore is the model that China should follow. Given all the developments that have been take, that have taken place recently in China, is this model still relevant? And if so, how do the Chinese government see this adapting and changing in the future?
1: Two good questions. David. Well, the second one, I, absolutely. I mean, I remember when I was in Hong Kong, the uh, you know, Chinese uh, officials, they, they, would, they didn't really much like coming to Hong Kong. Particularly, but they loved going to Singapore because that was how they would see China being. The trouble is, Singapore has what three million people, and China one point three billion, and you know, it's the difference. You can do that, I think, on a Singapore. You know, I won't argue about the Singapore model or not, but you can do it on the Singapore scale, but you really can't do it on the China scale. And also, Singapore's very different with the mixed ethnic, you know, the basis and the position in the world and so on. I, I don't really see that it's, it's a nice dream for some Chinese officials but I, I don't think I mean. as for China's foreign policy um, I mean nationalism undoubtedly is is strong uh, there's no doubt uh, and it is, it can be manu- you know, manipulated uh, to an extent, I remember when I was in Beijing two years ago uh, and there was great excitement about uh, uh, some clashes between Chinese trawlers and Japanese coast guard ships and there was great uh, particularly in Chengdu, there were great outbursts that, but somebody clearly at some point decided at the top that that was enough nationalism, thank you and I was having uh, lunch in Ritan Park in Beijing just opposite the Japanese embassy and there were probably about three hundred policemen there in their buses, playing cards, smoking, and waiting for the demonstrators who never came. You know, it's, it's it's it's. But um, I don't know. It's China wants to be. It wants to be a, a global power. It wants to be respected. It wants to be part of any forum, G20, G anything else that there is. But it doesn't want to commit itself to anything which would restrain its freedom of action. I think. And in a sense, China would be quite happy. You know, it, it, It's easy to say, oh, you know, its uh, doctrine of uh, non-interference in the internal affairs of another country is purely so that nobody's going to poke their noses into Tibet or Xinjiang. But I think it goes further than that. I think it, it is real. And I think, I mean, this is an easy thing to say, but I think in a sense... China would love to be able to be, given the scale of its domestic problems and the changes and transitions that have to take place there, it would almost been like to be out of the world for 10 years to get on with its domestic things. But of course, it can't leave the world because globalization has been you know, the big driver of a, of a lot of, of the economy. Mm. So it's called, but I think if you look at foreign policy formulation, the difficulty is you've got a pretty weak foreign, po- uh, foreign ministry with which, which deals with the foreigners and with which the foreigners deal. But the real foreign policy decisions are made by the Communist Party leading group on, uh, on foreign policy, which is a pretty shadowy group. You've then got the export lobby involved, the commerce ministry, that's to say. You've got the energy Lobby involved, you've got the PLA involved, you've got lots of, you've got heavy industry involved. There's so many different players. I mean, this has been worked out, you know, there are a dozen different players putting into foreign policy. So you can get, at one point, China following a certain, for instance, in, in East Asia, of 210, 211, you had all these maritime clashes. Yeah. Now, we're told that most of these trawlers were, in fact, part of the PLA's naval militia which is why they always form up into, neighbor, into military formations. So they were, that's the PLA saying, we're going to you know, give the, these Filipinos a bloody nose and these Vietnamese. Then you've got the energy lobby saying, we've got to keep our claim to any energy resources under the South China Sea. But then others came in towards the end of last year, and suddenly you had a flurry of cooperation agreements, diplomatic missions, we all love each other. Now you've got the Philippines starting up again. I think it's pretty incoherent myself. It's it's not dangerous in that we're not going to have World War Three. Mm. Taiwan's gone off the bur- gone onto the back burner at the moment, mm. but it's going to be a constant irritant. Sure. Sure. I
0: think and it is very costly for China. I mean, the, the lack of, of coherence and its yep. foreign policy. I mean, if you look at Southeast Asia, for instance which is the area in its neighbourhood that China has spent the most time building up a mutually pr- productive relationship to over 20 years, so much of that is now going because of the inconsistencies in China's positioning on South China Sea yeah. issues. And I think there's a deep felt s- sense, uh, certainly in the party, that you know, they haven't got this one right, okay. but they don't know how to get it right. It seems to be. Well, this is what we'll be talking about in, as
1: I said, much greater depth on yeah, the 29th of yeah, May. Uh, there. To. But uh, basically, there's that. And then, and, uh, you know, and it's also that America has come back into the Pacific, and Obama's made a big thing of that. I mean, it doesn't work economically because the, the, China, the American idea of having a free trade zone in the Pacific, which will not include China and probably not include Japan or South Korea either, doesn't really make very much sense. But militarily, a lot of countries, including Singapore, mm. want the Americans to. Strategic umbrella to remain with them.
0: Absolutely. More questions? Yes, please. We'll take some over there. Lady in the front first. Yeah, do speak into the microphone. Thank you very much. Um, related to the last point, I wonder if you can talk a bit more about global role. Of China, especially what Europe and America want China to play economically. As I said, yeah, if China becomes the leader of Asia and region, America doesn't want it, and if China invests too much in Latin America, they don't want it either. So, what kind of global role America and Europe want for China to play? Thank you. Lovely. Thank you very much. Right, right next. Yeah, please. Sir. Thank you. Um, I've always felt, perhaps wrongly, that China, like Russia, was
1: not a country but an empire. Um, to what extent um, am I right? What, what percentage of people who we call Chinese consider themselves Chinese and what percentage consider themselves to be an oppressed minority like the Tibetans?
0: That's a very good question. Some of us, of course, said that China is an empire behaving like a nation state. Now, right at the back over there. Yes, sir. Can go to you yeah, yes. No, you need, to, need to use the mic because those upstairs continue. you. We Could you, of all the dynasties, one which is very interesting because it was part of the largest empire the world has known today, landmass, the medieval Mongol Empire, uh, the Yuan dynasty, and Kublai Khan, the grandson of Genghis Khan's founder. And I'd very much interested to know what your view is about, contemporary Chinese views about this particular dynasty, because the Mongol Empire was, the British Empire was the largest, but the Mongol Empire still remains the largest empire. The world is no antiguous landmass, and China was an important part of it. Thank you. John? Uh, well, the
1: Mongols, of course, like the uh, Manchus, were you know, the foreign dynasty. That the but in Chinese terms, they, the, 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 the Manchus, although they actually kept to their Manchu habits and traditions within the Forbidden City, let's say, but they, they adopted Confucianism and Chinese ways outside. They were very clever at this the, 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 the Qing uh, in adapting to the conditions of the various parts of their empire but for them, but even more for the Mongols, the Mongols didn't bother they were, they were conquerors and they were going to do their own thing and they weren't going to bother about all this Confucianism uh, and so on uh, so they, but China was only a small, as you rightly said, I mean both these empires had huge territorial swathes going from Manchuria all through, I mean, in the case of the Mongols, you know, right uh, over to, to Europe and so on. And China was only quite a small part of that, I think. Um, which, again, the Chinese don't particu- the Chinese official narrative doesn't particularly like that. Um, But I'm no expert on the Mongols as such, so uh, I'll I'll defer. I'm sure you probably know more than I do. Uh, I think it's usually reckoned that 95% of Chinese are Han Chinese, and so do regard themselves as Chinese. That, that, That is so. I mean, there are there are 65, I think it is 60 or 65 official minorities. In fact, there are many more but they decided 65 was quite enough. So various small ethnic groups were welded together. This was in 1949. Uh, But China is overwhelmingly Han Chinese. But I would at the same time, and I go into this in the book, there are enormous differences within that. And to say that every, because everybody is a Han Chinese, they're all identical sons and daughters of the Yellow Empire is wrong. I mean, everything is different from the size of people, tall in Shandong, short in Guangzhou. The food all over China is completely different. The way people live, even the coffins, uh, the way coffins are made is different. There are a lot, of, a great number, that's part of the fragmentation of China that I talked about there. But, you know, period you'll read a piece in a newspaper saying China's about to break up. That's rubbish. It isn't. There. Partly because of the history of that hundred years of difficulty uh, which I uh, mentioned earlier. As for the global role of China, that I think the US and EU, just as I would say China doesn't have a very coherent foreign policy, I don't think the US or the EU have a very coherent China policy. It's what's known as hedging. I think this was Joe Nye's phrase that he originated, that you want to get on with China, you want to trade with China, you have to accept China as a partner, but you're always hedging against the possibility that China will turn nasty and cause a lot of trouble one way or the other. So it's it's a kind of, it's a very uneasy uh, relationship, I think. And if you take Obama's first visit, only visit, uh, to China, I mean, that was extraordinary in its way because it was a kind of the the American Chinese were playing games with each other the whole time the Americans insisted that he must have an open town hall meeting televised in Shanghai but in fact the people were all chosen in the audience and it was only broadcast on local Shanghai television and the person who probably did best out of it was the young lady in the front row in a red jacket who stood up and said something or other, and then sold advertising spots as the woman who talked to Obama on the Chinese television thereafter. Uh, It's quite well known for this before it was stopped. Uh, And then Obama went to Beijing, had talks with Hu Jintao, Said he'd like to have some more talks the next day, and the Chinese said, No, we think it would be a good idea if you went to the Great Wall. So he went to the Great Wall and then went to the airport mm. and left. And, you know, there's a kind of inconclusiveness about this, mm. which I think is, is, is often there, which comes from, from both sides. As for the EU, I apologize if there are any EU officials here today, but I think Europe is. There are many who
0: want to be EU. Yes.
1: <laughs> Europe is notable by its lack of a coherent Chinese policy, and China's made the most of that. It cherry picks uh, European countries. One day, Sarkozy will see the Dalai Lama, so don't buy any French goods for the next... It's usually 18 months, the purgatory, after meeting the Dalai Lama. The Heidelberg University has done a study on this. Um, you know, Norway gives the, the Nobel Peace Prize to... The, 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 the uh, imprisoned dissident. So, uh, sales of Norwegian salmon to China stopped, which is probably good for Scotland. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, at the same time, negotiations with the, the, the Norwegian oil company, Statoil, continued. Um, so, you get an on off policy uh, towards Europe. And Europe is all the time seeking for Chinese policy. But, but I think the basic thing, it comes down to the hedging thing in the end that everybody knows they need to have a relationship with China and they always want it to be as productive an economic relationship as possible but politically they can't engage, they they don't quite know how to engage with China. I think it's wrong to say they ignore China because you know China is in everybody's mind the whole time but there's a lot of uncertainty about the basis for the relationship. When when Mitt Romney is elected and on his first day in the White House (laughs) carries out his promise to declare China a currency manipulator we might see more clarity, but it may be of a negative kind.
0: Probably one of the reasons why we won't get elected. Now, over here, Lady... Right there, yes. We'll take some more white right in the centre so, We'll, we'll so, do a couple of answer questions, please. But in the contrast, how far do you think then that Chinese are bothered about the European and the American views? Um,
1: if we're always hedging our feelings of, about how they feel, do you think they really care how the rest of the world
0: feels? Or mm. are they mm. content that they're, you know, they're all the all-powerful? Yes, right in front. Is
1: the cyber warfare that seems to be existing between America and China the new Cold
0: War? Hmm. Good, precise question, as if in an exam. Yes, over here. Yeah, you you mentioned at the beginning
1: um, that China China has sort of erased the history um, of of its country. I just wondered what... The current sort of party line was on the history, particularly the history of the Communist Party, and whether there's an intellectual interest amongst the Chinese as to what their true history is.
0: Take one more. Yeah, right behind that. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you. Yeah. Um, actually, relating slightly to what this gentleman just said a moment ago, um, with regards to gender equality in China, um, you mentioned at the very beginning of your lecture about um, how. Um, as she lies, um, actions um, have been almost blamed upon his wife. Mm. Does this work in the same, um, sort of in the opposite direction and if so, how do people feel about um, Chairman Mao's wife who took part in some by many people's accounts quite extreme actions Um, and also if they do feel that if they they do feel that um, her actions affect Chairman Mao's Um, appearance in in history from their perspective, doesn't this go against exactly what she was fighting for in a way to have um, female independence Mm. and also how how long do you feel it's going to be um, before you see female um, representatives in the Chinese Communist Party?
0: Mm. Female General Secretary, yeah. There there,
1: there is a speculation that there may be a woman member of the Standing Committee coming out of the Party Congress who was head of the United Front uh, movement but I mean this is speculating there. Uh, I mean, Gender equality in China moved forward a, a lot uh, in reality as well as on paper under the communist government. There's no doubt at all there. Although it, was, it, it went forward and it went backward uh, and so on. It was also mixed in with um, party officials from the country who fought all through the Civil War in the countryside coming into the cities. And it's famous, you know, leaving their rural wives behind and taking up with what they call sweet buns, yes, of, of, of urban women and so on and so on. Um, there's very little uh, rela- uh, presence of women in senior posts in China. Um, the trade negotiator was for a while uh, the education, higher education <laughs> minister uh, who once presented me with a birthday cake, so well, that was a good sign, uh, was a woman, but but very few at the top. On the other hand, there are a number of Uh, Women who have risen very uh, sharply, uh, very highly in in Chinese business. Regularly, the the rich list of the top ten people in China contains two or three women for a while. A lady who ran Nine Dragons, which is the world's biggest recycling uh, uh, business. A woman was in, uh, uh, I think, the richest person in China and the richest self made woman in the world, not necessarily as rich as the Queen. So, but it's a very mixed thing there. I mean, if you go, if you look more broadly socially, of course, one effect of the gender disparity in China, which is enormous now, (laughs) 10 men between 20 and 40 for every seven. uh, Seven women. So there's a shortage of women because of abortions of fetuses there. And this has had the paradoxical effect, of course, that young women are a scarce commodity in China. So you have what's called the bride price. I have a friend in Suzhou who charts the splendor of banquets. As you know the number of young available young ladies we, uh, kind of and that plays through into all kinds of areas i mean you 'll be told all the time that by young men that they go and look at their go and meet their prospective parents in law They say, "Ah, oh, you want to marry my daughter well you know we 've got three or four other people on the lines you have got a job haven 't you and you have got a flat haven 't you having a flat is absolutely essential so you know, this has many many different uh, ramifications, but I think it generally this is a, a pretty male uh, Society there. As for Chairman Mao's wife, well, of course, it was alleged that she was having an affair with the young uh, industrial worker who was also in the gang of of four. So it's a similar kind of thing. You know, there are parallels uh, all through this. We could talk uh, more about this. The cyber war, yeah. I mean, cyber. You know, who exactly is behind this? Where it's coming from? I don't know, and I don't think anybody does, and so on. But you know, is it a coincidence that a lot of the hacking? Uh, attacks on the US have been traced back to a university, which happens to be in a city which also houses the PLA New Technology Department. <laughs> Probably not. So, but you know how I, I, I'm. Uh, it, it, this is an important thing, but I'm not. I'm not sure how important you know it really is going to turn out to be. It's very difficult, uh, I think, uh, to 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 evaluate. Um. It, are Chinese concerned about the West, or who am I to speak for 1.3 billion Chinese? Um, not that much, I don't think. Uh, I think you know, there is a great, there's a great pride in what China has achieved and a great concentration on getting ahead in everyday life, as I was saying, in the kind of materialist way. The, the, the outside world, the rest of the world, is much now much less, as it were, uh, a matter of a, a hidden area for Chinese mm. because we've now got 60 million plus Chinese who travel abroad mm. every year and they're now allowed to travel individually rather than going uh, into groups. The Hong Kong has been a great window on the world uh, for China. Um, and there's, I think there's great acceptance uh, of the rest of the world, but not a particular. I mean, there's a, you could say, okay, you know upwardly mobile young Chinese all want to have a Gucci bag or whatever it is and they want it to be a real rather than a counterfeit. Well yes of course but um, that is a kind of engagement Mm. for the world but I don't think it's uh, you know, a sign that people think it's better um, out in the West necessarily. Although now to contradict myself immediately um, only 30% of Chinese students at institutes of higher education abroad go back to China when they graduate. They may go back later on but you know most of China, most of the, the Nobel Prizes and the scientific prizes won by Chinese are won in Silicon Valley, not in Beijing.
0: Yep. Right up there. yes, please. Hi,
1: seeing as you're so successful in predicting the downfall of Bo Lai, I was wondering if you could make a comment on Xi Jinping. <laughs> um, he's portrayed as a rather uncharismatic figure who rules by consensus or continuation. Do you see him lasting his 10-year term?
0: Will keeping lost. Yes, we have another question down here. Yes, the man in the white shirt over there. Um, do you see
1: much prospect of the uh, government in China rebalancing the economy away from um, investment and exports and towards consumption? And what do you think would be good methods to achieve that?
0: Mm-hmm. Will you end those two?
1: Well, let's take the second one first. Uh, yes, but it's going to be, it's, it's, this is as one. Somebody from the party school who I put exactly that question to, he said, yes, we will do this, but it's two five-year plans. So you, it's a long-term project. It's like everything in China. I mean, we were talking to some officials in Beijing in March about uh, the internationalization of the currency and all that. He said, yes, 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 we have a plan. It's a 13-year plan, and we're in year two. You know, ding, ding. So, it, yes, but it's a long-term thing. What would be the best thing to, to spur consumption? Well... You're already having 15 to 20% wage ing- or minimum wage increases, which mm-hmm. must have an effect. If, and you know the plan is for this, but it's not necessarily working that efficiently as far as I can tell at the moment, if you had an, a, 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 a proper welfare system, a health system, education system, and pension system, particularly with the number of old people, that would probably be the biggest single. I know there are people who deny did, 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 Debate this, uh, economists. But I think that would be the single biggest contribution to reducing the need for precautionary savings, and that money would go into consumption there. I mean, consumption rate, you know, consumption, uh, retail sales are going up at 15% a year. This is a, But it's going from a very, very low base. That's the trouble. And and, on, and the trouble is that the low base applies, as we, you know, to hundreds of millions of people. So you're a long way behind. And the Gini, you know, where is the money going in China? again perhaps a cliché to say so, but the problem one of the problems with China, which is a social problem as much as an economic social, is that the rich are getting richer faster than the poor are getting less poor. Was that those two? Okay. Was she, she last? Yes. I'll meet you in ten years' time and uh, we will buy a, a bottle of champagne if you think he's going. I think he's, he, because he is actually what China, what, what is probably required at this moment, under Hu Jintao, since the 2007 Party Congress, when he failed to get his man Li Keqiang uh, into the top slot for 2012, uh, and that was accepted, and who accepted that? That was the important thing. I mean, you know, it's, he's head of an authoritarian one-party state, but he accepts a kind of consensus management role. China is run by the equivalent of... The corporate board at the moment, with the party secretary as chairman. A state presidency doesn't matter, it's it's the party thing. And they all at the moment have an interest in keeping that consensus and moving forward. And I would have said two, three years ago that that was a real problem because the consensus was holding back decision-making and was a bar on changes. Perhaps I'm being over-optimistic, but I think there is an awareness now in that consensus of the need at least to consider change and what it means and I think she, who he may not be charismatic, apparently he does enjoy a joke, I'm mm. told by people mm. who've travelled with foreign diplomats mm. who've travelled with him, they've never given much examples of this, but and of course he loves American World War II movies because the good guys always win uh, as he put it to Huntsman um, but the, I think the he, he, he will keep this show on the road and keep it together the great danger for China is that there will be, to go back to a question I asked earlier before, an economic downturn, this is why they're so worried about a real slump in Europe and it, which is China's biggest trading partner um, that that will push them back towards a kind of knee-jerk reflexive you know, open up the credit taps pour more concrete, build more buildings misallocate more capital and away from, you know, that the, the immediate survival will become more important than long ter- the long-term changes that are needed there. And, of course, if Xi Jinping falls, we can always have gender equality, have his wife, who is a major
0: general in the army. And a very fine singer. And a very fine singer, yes. Now, uh, it's hard, of course, to do less charisma than Hu Jintao. So, I mean, in terms of comparisons... <laughs> yes. She uh, is starting out uh, but on not the high No, no, <laughs> you can't do them too flashy. They don't do that in China. I think this is a um, this is a sign of how much China is in the uh, in the news and in the in the public debate at the moment. Jonathan and I are, are doing book tours on two different continents. Jonathan's book, Tiger Heads, Snake Tails, China Today: How It Got There and Where It's Heading, is just out. It will be for uh, sale just outside. You're not allowed to
1: leave the building unless you have a copy in your hand. And
0: you will be spotted immediately because it's (laughs) so bright red. Uh, So if you want to get a signed copy of Jonathan Fenby's new book, you can go out by that door, buy it, come back in by that door. I'm informed by trusted sources. Um, And have Jonathan sign it for you here. This is worse
1: than the Politburo, where you only know who's come out on top by the order in which they come out. Well, we may actually
0: look look for that as well in terms of who is... Who is quickest in buying buying your book? I won't say more about my book yet. That comes for later. Now, um, I am also told to inform you, those of you who tweet, that this one is hashtag LSE China. And then most important of all, on the 29th of May, as Jonathan mentioned, we will have a right China feast here at LSE. A panel over in the old theater, in the old building, across the road from here. 29th of May, uh, six thirty, Kiss of the Dragon, China's economic uh, geoeconomic strategy, beg your pardon, in a changing global order. And that is with Jonathan Pembe, uh Guy de Junkia and uh, Linda Ye and I will be presiding over that one as well. Uh, Jonathan, what remains then is to thank you very, very much for an excellent lecture and for your best- answer <laughs>